Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you're listening to The Economist Asks, and welcome to the third episode of our series exploring the Trump presidency a year in. This week we're asking, could a woman oust Donald Trump in 2020? Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. That I can Hillary Clinton was widely expected to take her seat as the first female president in last year's elections, but she didn't. Hillary Clinton, commonly referred to as Crooked Hillary. Breaking news of Hillary Clinton's leaving a 9-11 event early uh, after feeling unwell. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. So what happened? When we spoke to the former First Lady on The Economist Asks last month, she maintained that anti-female sentiment had certainly played its part. I don't think there's any doubt that sexism and misogyny, which are endemic in our society, uh, were uh, very much factors. They, in my view, were unleashed to an even greater extent than usual by Trump's campaign. But I wanted to explore what lies behind this. Voters are perfectly willing to elect someone they think is qualified, even if they don't like them, if they're a man, but people won't elect a woman that they don't like. The broader question of why white women vote for conservative policy ideas that would on some level disempower them further is a very complicated one. All eyes are on the women's vote. That was the vote that was supposed to make Hillary Clinton the first woman president of the United States. It didn't happen. Mary Jordan is a journalist at the Washington Post, and she also contributed to a biography looking at the role of America's women in his victory. Everyone is noticing now that what's really dragging down Donald Trump's horrible poll numbers are women. Men are actually still holding in there at 43 percent a year out, still approve of him, and yet only 29 percent of women. So it's the women that are saying, no, we don't like this. There's too much defense spending, not enough social spending. And in this current climate about a lot of care about women in the workplace, people care about sexual harassment, they care about lewd comments, they care about the incivility, they, they, they care about the constant confrontation. People say anything to Donald Trump and he screams like back at them like a bully. So it's going to take its toll. And I think that 2018... Again, all eyes on the women's vote. Before we get there, though, I was curious as to why women didn't push one of their own into the White House last year, shattering that most reinforced of glass ceilings. So I spoke to Celinda Lake, pollster and political strategist for the Democrats, and asked her whether the proposition that Hillary didn't become president because she was a woman was indeed true, based on the data that she's seen since the last election. 
Well, it was certainly true that sexism made a difference. Uh, there's no question about that. Sexism and racism made a difference, and um, in both direct and subtle ways. One of the more subtle ways was that we found, yet again affirmed, research that's been done by the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, that voters are perfectly willing to elect someone they think is qualified, even if they don't like them, if they're a man, but people won't elect a woman that they don't like. So we saw that really play out in the Hillary Clinton race. Um, Both candidates were negative. But if people had just voted the one they disliked less, Hillary would have been president. So we definitely saw some double standard there. Is the female vote really such a key battleground, though? We talk about it as if it is because it's socially very interesting. A lot of people feel very invested in it anyway for political or philosophical reasons. But if you're preoccupied with swing voters in industrial heartlands or ex-industrial heartlands, does it matter if you go after women or, or maybe you know, you'd be better off using that time to, to go after disaffected male voters? The key is to win women. For Democrats, the key is to win women by more than you lose men. So we need to create enthusiasm among women and keep men sullen but not mutinous. Those Virginia elections, the state elections that occurred that are a harbinger for the future, Democrats won women by 22 points. We lost men by only two points. That's why we had a double-digit victory. And does, you, it's invidious, but it is possible that some of these groups are, are voting in a way that prominent sociologist Ali Russell Hochschild has suggested that the advances of women and non-whites are seen as being at the expense of men. So when you talk about keeping sort of keeping men on board and winning more women, is it very obvious where you have to target your message, or are you in quite a sort of deep sociological swamp there that, you know, for all the brilliance of strategists, they find quite hard to get right? It is very complicated. One of the things that hasn't been noticed is that many of these races were in states, Virginia and New Jersey, that were more college-educated. And as we go out to the industrial heartland, as you said, we're going to face more non-college-educated voters. I think the solution to the question is twofold. One, we need a broad economic plan. We need a robust economic profile for our party. We've been working on it, but we need it even more than we have it. Two, we need to be for change. And economic reform and political reform are linked. But you're right. We have to get men as well as women. We want an economy that works for everybody. We want an economy where everyone prospers. We can't be picking groups any more than the Republicans can win picking groups. But would it have a real impact, even if the Democrats did target women? As Mary Jordan explains, the female vote isn't one cast simply on matters of gender. When you really look at it, women vote party. They don't vote gender. Now, that's very different than liking the president when they're in office. And, and we are seeing really a, uh, a rise in women critical of, of how this president is acting. Well, let's unpack that a bit. I mean, you could say the fact that people found it shocking that women voted for Donald Trump said more about their limited outlook than it did about Donald Trump. You put that down to women being loyal to party. It, has that historically been true? And why do you think that Donald Trump didn't sort of awaken the resistance of women that perhaps many liberal women would have liked him to do. 
Um, it is uh, historic that women, we tend to vote party in the end. I mean, they, they're interested in defense spending. They're interested in abortion issues. They're interested in other things, and they don't just vote on gender. And of course, there isn't just one type of woman. Nevertheless, some historic ties are strong, particularly in certain demographics. Rebecca Traster is author of Big Girls Don't Cry, the election that changed everything for American women. White women voting for Trump was actually one of the least surprising results. White women vote Republican. They always have. They vote Republican by a lesser margin than white men vote Republican, but they vote Republican. In fact, 3% fewer of them voted for Donald Trump than voted for Mitt Romney. 56% of white women voted for Mitt Romney over Barack Obama in 2012, and 53% voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton in 2016. The broader question of why white women vote for conservative candidates and conservative policy ideas that would on some level disempower them further is a very complicated one. Two more women come forward accusing producer Harvey Weinstein of rape. British now, though, society is coming to terms with the wake of Hurricane Harvey. Accusations of sexual misconduct originally against Harvey Weinstein, but broader accusations of harassment against women are rippling through establishments, through businesses and through political parties across the world. So could this play into the politics around us? Oh, I think the sexual harassment is definitely playing a role. Celinda Lake. Uh, first of all, you have a number of politicians and celebrities dropping out, going by the wayside, losing, having to give up their offices. There's something really different that has happened. Secondly, I think that you will see a number of candidates run, particularly for offices like attorney general, on strong anti-sexual harassment messages and that we're going to have tough enforcement and new standards, that this is just unacceptable. So I think it's had a big impact. It's increased the appetite for women candidates, and it's increased turnout among women voters. I think it's a contributing factor to women being really energized, along with the health care issue, the way the economy is going, Trump's style and agenda. Some are critical of this positive view, however. Rebecca Traster has spoken out against the hypocrisy of male politicians as she sees it following the Weinstein revelations. One in particular got under her skin recently. A little less than a week after the story about Harvey Weinstein's serial sexual assaults was broken in the New York Times, the former Vice President Joe Biden gave a speech condemning Weinstein and calling his behavior disgusting. In it, he talked about how his father had taught him that the worst thing you could do was abuse power and commended the women, the brave women, who were willing to speak up about the power abuses that they had suffered at the hands of Weinstein. And by many measures, this made sense because Joe Biden's contemporary reputation is built in part on the fact that he authored the Violence Against Women Act, um, which was transformative in, in the fight against violence against women in the United States. But listening to Biden offer this speech and this condemnation of Weinstein and also the analysis of how power works was fascinating to me because, to my mind, one of the most crucial moments in America's political history was one in which Joe Biden was presiding and actually had ultimate power. And those were the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court of the United States in 1991. George Bush had nominated Clarence Thomas, an extremely conservative African-American lawyer, to be a Supreme Court justice. And Joe Biden, who was then a senator from Delaware, was in charge of the Senate Judiciary Committee that was in control of those Senate hearings. And it was an all 
male, all white panel. At that point, the U.S. Senate was disproportionate. I mean, it still is disproportionately male and disproportionately white. At that point, it was almost blindingly white male. And there was a woman who had worked with Clarence Thomas in the past named Anita Hill, who had a story, claims that he sexually harassed her. It took a fight to even get Joe Biden in charge of the Senate Judiciary Committee to permit Anita Hill to testify. Anita Hill was a black woman, and she was treated abominably by that Judiciary Committee. Lots of the right-wing members of the committee insulted her, accused her of erotomania, which is a sort of um, like a a sexual disease. Um, They impugned her as being single and desperate and having been besotted by Clarence Thomas and exacting some kind of single lady revenge on him. And meanwhile, the Democrats on the committee did not, including Biden, including Ted Kennedy, did not stand up for her, did not defend her. There were also three other women who were willing to testify to corroborate Anita Hill's story, and Joe Biden did not call them. And Part of the result is that Clarence Thomas was confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Anita Hill was not believed by the men of the Senate Judiciary Committee. This is an example, fundamentally, of power abuse. He has been asked in the years that followed about his behavior on that committee, and he's quite defensive about it, and he says, oh, the women didn't want to testify, and I don't believe that he's ever really taken full responsibility for the way that he abused his own power to very deleterious ends in in that instance. I would love to hear Joe Biden really grapple with that. In this current administration, President Trump has two very important women in his life, his wife Melania and his fiercely loyal daughter Ivanka. How important are they to the presidency? Mary Jordan. Well, a colleague of mine just wrote a wonderful piece about Ivanka, calling her Queen Ivanka, that she's kind of our our royal, our royalty. She looks perfect. She has this ceremonial role. Uh, you know, she's it's an inherited position. I mean, she's only there because her father is in the White House. She enjoys uh, quite a bit of support among some people. But there is rising resentment that she writes about um, women in the workplace and, you know, balancing with family and, and home. And, and every time now she goes out to give a speech, uh, there's hecklers and people saying, hey, why don't you talk to your own father about how he deals with women in the workplace? Because, of course, there has been a lot of accusations against Trump dating back a long time about him, you know, grabbing some woman inappropriately or groping them uh, in the workplace. Well, let, let's stay on groping for a minute, if we could. Those accusations have been around, but here we are in the era of the Harvey Weinstein, and yet... I have to say, none of it really ever seems to quite stick on Donald Trump. Why is that? I mean, it could be that the evidence is too slight. I think a lot of the accusations go back to the 1990s. I think people thought they were too far away. Um, and, you know, again, it's it's a million-dollar question. Why does this... I mean, this guy has done so many things that would make, you know, somebody who had a far lesser office be bounced, and it doesn't work. So that question is raised every day. People you know, want to scream about why not. But I do think that I looked at a lot of those allegations and, um, you know, I mean, they, they hurt um, President Clinton. You know, he had he paid money. He settled the lawsuit. And in a lawsuit, in a deposition, he lied about Monica Lewinsky, and that led to his impeachment. So it did hit 
ultimately mm. President Clinton hard. And so, you know, it's one year in. I mean, some people still think that there's a lot of this rumbling out there and that something could come home to roost. And you, what do you think? I think that um, his supporters, again, the people that I'm talking to, don't care at all. They just say it's long ago, boys will be boys. Again, this is this segment that his, his base, they say, you know what, I just don't care. There were a lot of people doing this, and he's now running the country, and would you just let him cut my taxes and fix my schools and get me a job? Ivanka's role as the first daughter, a role I suppose that's always existed a bit in, in modern American politics, but this time she really does put herself out to the, the fore, or your colleague called her Queen Ivanka. We've seen her as an advance party sometimes, not least in the Asia trip. She went off to Japan, she talked about women's empowerment. Yes, it irks people who don't like to hear that from a, a Trump, but is there a purpose to this? Does it fit within the administration or is it just a pleasant distraction in a pink suit? She is an enormous help to him. Uh, She helped him uh, immeasurably on the campaign trail. She was, I think, the single most important spokesman for her. She really took the role that many spouses have because his spouse, of course, English is her second language. Uh, She hates, uh, Melania hates talking in public. It was Ivanka. She's together, she's smart, she's well-spoken, she looks the part. And he leans on her, and they happen to be very close. When I was in Trump Tower uh, interviewing Donald Trump uh, right before the election, Ivanka's husband, Jared, walked in, and I was chatting with him, and he said no matter how busy or what part of the country uh, her father was campaigning in, they talked three times a day. And that is not true with the sons. They are, I mean, I think you can feel the closeness, and that hugely helped him in the polls. And on campaign day, it's why he's president. So what's next? I asked Celinda Lake what she would do differently and what pollsters have learned from a pretty widespread failure to spot Donald Trump in the ascendancy last time round. We've learned three lessons at least, and and most uh, pollsters are really examining what we do. One is that we can't rely on just one turnout model. We need to look at a variety of turnout scenarios. Two, we need to have more different sources of information, particularly at the end of campaigns. The Hillary Clinton campaign was notorious for relying on big data and only limited polling at the end of the campaign. They didn't do a lot of social media listening. They didn't do qualitative research. They didn't debrief their field staff. And I think many of us are insisting on there being a much broader gathering of information. But we do see surges at the end. I mean, one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton lost was no question the two Comey letters. So we know how difficult it is to capture those last-minute surges, and we've learned not to stop polling 10 days out from the election. Indeed. I'm going to stick my neck out and say Democrats are less likely to go for a female candidate after the Hillary experience. Am I right? These last elections saw women being so successful first women elected mayor in like half a dozen states, two-thirds of the races in Virginia won by women, including a transgender woman. 
Mary Jordan. Now, what is really interesting and why all eyes are on the 2018 elections is that, that those elections, there'll be thousands of different races from the you know, state in Cleveland, Ohio, to the, sta- to the mayor's office, to Congress. So we will have a lot of test cases about the Trump presidency next time. And what's very noticeable is how many women are putting their name up and running for office. So we're going to have a, a, what they're calling really a, a, the beginning of what looks like a landslide of female candidates. And by the way, it's mostly at the local level. There is still a ceiling, unfortunately, at the higher level of offices. So with a slew of new female candidates expected to be in the running in 2020, I wanted to find out what the perfect candidate might look like. Celinda Lake again. Someone who listens? Someone who is a change agent, someone who has been a community leader or made a difference on an issue, someone who has an economic plan, a mom with probably grown children. And I think the real key here is to have more than one woman. That sounds great. If only we could produce that perfect woman candidate in in elections. (laughs) The, The Blade Runner replicant. Thank you very much, Celinda Lake. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to all our other guests, too. That's all from this series of The Economist Asks, our US specials. We will be back soon, though. Do let us know your thoughts on the Trump presidency a year on. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or send them through the old-fashioned way by email to radio at economist.com. In London and Washington, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.